I'm going to read you a, a mission statement of a university. Um, see if you recognize it. You may not know it. Uh, so here's the mission statement. Of, it's a well-known university. It is to be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. That's the mission statement of a university. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. On the, uh, the motto of the school is, is veritas, the Latin word for truth. And on the diplomas is printed in, in Latin, but it translates to truth for Christ and the church. School, does that sound like? Anybody want to throw a guess out there? It does sound like Howard Payne. And I refer to Howard Payne awfully as which school? The Harvard of the South. That, that was the original mission statement for Harvard University. Now, within 80 years after Harvard had been founded, there were a group of people that looked and said, hey, we're not, we're not focusing as much on Jesus Christ and developing ministers as we, as we once thought when we started the university. So a, a very well-known philanthropist named Elihu Yale gave a lot of money to people, and they started another university that was aimed to uh, prepare ministers and to help prepare people to, to preach the gospel. The university was named after uh, the giver of that money, Yale University. And they took the, the motto Veritas, and they made sure they added to, in, in the Latin, truth and light. Two universities that uh, started and were founded with the intention to make Jesus Christ known and, and to equip ministers. And then we come to not too long ago, and the former president of Harvard said this, quote, Things divine have been central neither to my professional nor to my personal life. Isn't that interesting? That somewhere along the way, there was this drift from the original goal. There was this plan. We, we, want, to, we want to make the gospel known throughout America. We want to train up people in a way so that they are educated and they can also teach the Word of God, and teach Scripture, teach, teach Jesus to people. And now a university has come 180 degrees different directions, and, and they've drifted away from their mission, from the goal, from, from where the, the journey was supposed to take them. And you've, you've probably had things like that happen to you in your life. There was, for example, maybe you had a, a boss that came to you and said, hey, we've got this project, and I know it's not really, it's really not in your wheelhouse. It's not something you're interested in, um, but we think you're the best person for the job. If you would focus on this project, if you would get it running and get it going and build this team, when it's all said and done, we're going to move you over here to this, which you enjoy. Maybe it was a promotion. Maybe it was a raise. We Get us through and over this hump, and then we will honor that and bless you. And so, so you said, I'm in. I don't want to do this, but I see, that, I see the, where the journey ends, and I do want to get there, so I'm in. And you do that for months or years or however long it takes, and at the end, you finish the task, and, you, and you're ready for that next step, what has, what has been laid out for you as the future, where the journey ends, and then the boss says, well, hey, things, things have changed. We're not really, we can't go that direction now, and, and you felt that you know, in something similar maybe, where you saw where you were headed, but something outside of your control kind of came in along the way and, and it bumped you off track. You might have had like financial goals and said, hey, this is where we're going to end up. And then there was a, a health problem or, or family issues and it came in. And it wasn't something you could control, but it just, it readjusted where you're headed. And, it, and immediately 
you started trying to readjust to get back towards that goal. That's happened. What's more tragic, though, is when we have this vision, we have this end to the journey, here's where I'm headed, and somewhere along the way, it isn't a, a, an event, it isn't a, a monumental tragedy, it's just our own inattention, our own focus, and we start to drift away from where we're headed. Here's the goal, and I got so distracted by all kinds of other things, I, I've landed over here. Now, most everybody in here has teenagers, and it may be the case. I can't really speak to it, even though I, I think so. I know it's, I see this like every day in my own home with, with a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. I mean, I mean, we can have a conversation that goes like this. Hey, go get in the shower. The shower water is running. Okay. And they get to the door with a goal in mind, and they turn around and they go, hey, um, afterwards, can I have a snack? And we go, sure. And they go, Okay. And then pick up something and start doing something like, go get in the shower. Ah, you know, it's like, they just get distracted along the way of accomplishing the task or the goal. The tragic thing is when, we, when, 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 it's, when it's on us, when we wake up and we're nowhere near where we said we wanted to go. It's like a guy named, his name is Jared Whipple. He's a guy from Florida in his 40s. Out hanging out at the beach. Has a little bit too much to drink. This was a few years ago. And, and at, well, I say a little bit too much to drink. He's drunk goes and he sits in one of those, those little swimming pool rings that, you know, you kind of put your butt in and you, you float in the swimming pool. A, a small one even, not, not, this is for kids. And he's in the ocean and he starts to float out. And in the midst of floating out, he also passes out. True story. He's a mile off of the coast. When a boat sees what they think is a large piece of de- debris floating in the ocean. And so they go to think, hey, we'll move it out of the way because we don't want another boat to hit it. And they realize that it's a body. They think the person's dead. They think it's a body floating in the ocean. They call the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard shows up. They're yelling through loudspeakers at the guy, blowing the horns of the boat, and he is still out. When they finally get him up, they take him to the hospital. They even, I don't know how it all finished. They, they, they talked about charging him with, uh, operating a motor ve- or a, a nautical vehicle under the influence. I don't know if one of the swimming pool rings counts, but they, they talked about doing that. Could you imagine that? You, you come to. Your goal was just to hang out in the water with your feet in the sand or your feet in the water, your, your butt in the sand, and you wake up surrounded by a, a fleet of Coast Guard ships yelling at you through the loudspeaker. You have no clue where you are, but you're nowhere near where you started. Now that's, that's the tragic thing when it comes to our spiritual journeys as well. See, for a lot of us in here, if you made a decision to follow Jesus, I would assume that there are many that made a decision years ago. Maybe when you were a teenager or even a child, a young adult, and some have made it uh, later into their adult years. And you set out with, hey, here's the goal. It's to walk faithfully. It's to be a disciple. The end goal is to look like Jesus. And that that will come into fruition when we meet Jesus face-to-face and we step across in eternity and enter into heaven. We'll have a new body and we will be fully sanctified. But we're in this journey now and now we're in our late 40s, we're in our 50s and we look back and all of a sudden we wake up and we go, you know, I'm not really where I'm supposed to be. I've drifted. I should be further down this road than, than I thought. Well, for the last three weeks, we've been walking through 2 Timothy. 
talking about truth matters. And the very first week, we, if you weren't with us, you can get these on iTunes. Last week's message didn't get recorded because we had some technical issues, but uh, you can get week one and week two. Week one, we, we found out that Paul, who is uh, really the first missionary, responsible for 13 of our 27 New Testament books, responsible for churches all over uh, the Mediterranean area, he's writing a letter to a young guy named Timothy who's a leader in the church at Ephesus. And what Timothy is battling as a, as a spiritual leader, as a mentor to people, as a pastor, is there is a, a creeping of culture into the belief system of the people and it's affecting the church. And so Paul, in, in the first week, in the first chapter, and really throughout this letter, he's, his argument to Timothy is, Timothy, truth matters. You have to be able to look and assess, hey, this teaching or this ideology or this belief that the culture tells us reflects truth actually does or does not reflect the character and nature of God as revealed to us in Jesus Christ and revealed to us in Scripture. And so he's got this battle. Now, 2,000 years later, we're sitting in central Texas in a church in, 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 in America where we're battling the same thing, a culture that's telling us over and over again, hey, this is, this is truth, and this is what matters, and culture has changed our ideas of truth. And so we go back to this passage of Scripture to find out that 2,000 years later, we're in the same spot of trying to understand that the character and nature of God as revealed to us in Scripture, as revealed to us in the person of Jesus, is actual reality. And at the end of week one, we also discover that Paul says, hey, you and I and Timothy, we're responsible. We've been entrusted with this truth to pass it down to our children to speak to it in our culture, to share with people, we learned in week two, not in an argumentative way, to argue and fight over what is true and what's not, but to live it out and to stand firm and go, this is the way God has created things. And this is what we're supposed to do. Last week, we talked about genuine godliness. So the power of God has to be lived out in us. The truth of God is something that we live and we do, not just something we pretend and, and point to. And as we continue this letter, Paul comes to, to these words in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let me find where I went. Sorry. Verse 14. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. Again, he's talking to Timothy. As for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So again, this is written with this undercurrent uh, of a cultural assault on truth and on what, what, what Timothy is trying to teach people. Now, sometimes our belief systems change because of, of a major event. There are people that uh, they said, hey, I believe that God exists, and they lose a loved one tragically, and all of a sudden they go, I don't believe God anymore. There, there was this one big event that changed how I believe, but but for a lot of us, changing what we believe doesn't happen overnight. It happens over a long period of time as ideas come in subtly, they creep in, and, and we begin to go, oh, I don't know if that's true anymore. I'm not real sure if I hold that to be something I can stake my life on. And then Years later, we look back and we're in a whole nother, a whole nother place. Let me give you an example. Uh, tattoos. Let's take tattoos for an example. Uh, when you and I were growing up, the vast majority of people that had tattoos were criminals, homeless people, 
maybe, maybe military, that, you know, that was kind of a different side of things. But, but tattoos weren't looked upon like with smiles, right? I mean, like your grandparents, unless they were like a Marine, you know, like if you came home and you were like, hey, dad, check out my tattoo. I mean, I remember when my brother got his first tattoo and I mean, like kept it hidden for I don't, months. And my parents discovered when they came and woke him up one morning and he was sleeping with his arm underneath his pillow. And so he had no shirt on his tattoo was right there. And they're like, hey, you got to get up and let's talk about that. <laughs> you know, he'd try to keep it hidden. Well, now there wasn't something that happened in our culture that all of a sudden this one thing happened. Everybody went from Tattoos are, are not mainstream. Tattoos are kind of from the criminal, bad people in society to really almost totally accepted in the norm, right? Like grandparents are going to get tattoos. You know, 15-year-old girls are like, I can't wait till I'm 18 because I want to get this tattoo. It's just totally different. I had a conversation. What I love, you know, one of the things I love about Twitter is on Twitter, you can have conversations with people that you would never be able to talk to in real life, celebrities, athletes. Sometimes they'll respond to you. Well, there's a, a guy that used to play basketball for the University of Texas. He's graduating. He just finished his senior season named Prince Ebay. And he was on Twitter. I was following him, and he's got into a conversation with some people about why uh, corporate America frowns upon people with tattoos. And people are, actually what he said is why white corporate America frowns upon tattoos. And so a lot of people started attacking him about the race card. And so all this Twitter conversation is going on. And so I, I answered his question, took out, took out the race issue, and just said, well, what happens is most of the people that are CEOs and companies are older. They're from another generation, and they, they have worked their way up the ranks, and now they are running things, and so they don't see the world like a 20-something does. They weren't raised that way. They were raised in a whole other culture. And I said, so it's not a matter from their perspective of uh, probably even right or wrong. It's just not the norm for them. And I said, as your generation becomes older and becomes CEOs, tattoos will become, that, that they'll be very normal probably, unless something changes in our culture and begins the, the slow direction the other way. And so he, res- and he responded back he, and said, hey, you know, that, that actually makes sense. You know, thanks. And I said, yeah, that, that's, that's what happens though. We have Culture kind of creeps in, and it begins to change. Again, now tattoos, we're not going to get into the argument of right or wrong, but that's just a great example. Paul's concerned about things that are legitimately right or wrong, that are changing our theology, changing our view on the character and nature of God. Because the character and nature of God and what we believe about it is how we live our lives and how we respond to the world. And so Paul is very concerned about that, as we should be. And so in verse 14, he goes back to Timothy and he says, as for you, you continue, you keep doing what you've learned and what you firmly believed. He says, Timothy, don't get caught up, don't get lax, don't get undisciplined. You keep getting into the scripture. Timothy, you keep being persistent in prayer. Timothy, you keep serving, you keep visiting the, the, the widows and the orphans, you keep loving people well, you keep obeying the scripture because when you stop doing those things, when you stop continuing in what you've learned and you get lazy or, or, or you take your eye off the goal, what you inevitably will do is start to drift. You'll start to move and you will drift in the tide that is culture. Because you'll hear these conversations, and for us, we'll see it on TV, and we'll see it in the movies, and we'll read it in magazines, and we'll, we'll hear the conversations around 
the, the water cooler at work, and, and we'll see articles on the internet. And if we're not doing what we know we're supposed to be doing in our discipleship journey, moving towards becoming like Jesus, being a disciple, we will drift. And so Paul says to Timothy, he says, you got to continue in what you're doing. I love, if you, if you go back to chapter two, we didn't read this passage of scripture when we were going through it. But in verse four, four, five, and six, he, he gives his analogies to Timothy about being a soldier, about being an athlete, about being a farmer. And in verse four, he talks about being a soldier. And he says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. He says, Timothy, a soldier is focused on the mission. When, when we drop a soldier off in Afghanistan, and, and when they give them a mission for the day, here's what our, our company is going to, or our battalion is going to accomplish today. We're going to take the city. We're going to do it. They, they don't veer off and go, well, hey, let's go like take a day of vacation over here. No, they go after the mission. They're focused, and that's what Paul tells Timothy. If you don't stay focused, if you get caught up in quote-unquote civilian affairs, you get caught up in, in the things that don't really matter, you'll start to drift and you'll end up looking like the world rather than looking like Jesus. And he says this, and this is what I love, especially from a, a parent standpoint. He says, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, if we go back to the first chapter of Timothy, the very beginning of this letter, Paul talks about two people in Timothy's life, his grandmother and his mother. And Paul talks about how you've been raised by these two godly women, and they are influential in where you are today. And so Paul alludes back to that, and he says, you keep doing what you know you're supposed to do. You keep doing the things you learned in childhood. I mean, as children, we learn we, should, we need to read the Bible. As children, we learn prayer is important. As children, we learn we need to serve other people. We need to love God and love people is, is a is, is a concept, an idea that a child can grasp, and most of us have known that if we grew up around things of faith, even if you didn't, even if you grew up in a home that did not have a Christian family, you probably would have looked at Christians and went, they're supposed to read the Bible, they're supposed to pray, they're supposed to love people. Paul says those simple things that you learn from your grandmother and your mother, you need to continue on in. Now again, think, here's the context. On Wednesday night with teenagers, we're going to have the same passage. We're going to look at the same piece of Scripture. And they're going to identify, hopefully, with Timothy. Paul's encouragement to Timothy is look to the people that you learn from. Now, that may or may not be you at this moment. I don't know, because I don't know what it's like in your home as you, I mean, you are supposed to be the lead disciple of your home. When, when, when we go to a teenager and go, tell me who, who looks of all the adults in your life that you know look most like Jesus, of all the adults in your life that give you a model of what it's like to love God and love people, of the adults who are influencing you and pushing you on to things of faith, who is that primary person? The correct answer, it may not be the answer we get, the correct answer should be my mom and dad. That, that's, that's the biblical example. That should be that. It may not be. Before you walk out going, well, I, I'm terrible and I'm a loser and I suck at life, why can't it start today? Why, why can't this week be the week where you draw the line in the sand and say to your kids, hey, you know what? We may not or I may not have been the best discipler. I'm trying to figure this out too. The great thing for you 
teenage boy, teenage girl, is, is you're starting in your journey with some things I didn't have when I was your age, and that's a great thing, but I'm starting from here, and I haven't been the, the, the best discipler of you. I haven't been the best leader of our family, but you know what? Today is the kind of the line in the sand for our family. I'm going to start learning how to lead. I'm going to start learning how to, to, to have some spiritual conversation in their home. And, and so son, daughter, it's going to be awkward for us for a little bit because we haven't done this, but I've got this yap on my phone. And I get three questions every week that have what we're talking about on Sunday morning and Wednesday night. And so I don't even know what that looks like, but we're going to at least start talking through those questions and having some faith conversations in this home as I figure out how to lead well. So that if you have not to this point, again, there's no reason to beat yourself up because God is a God of grace. He's got great plans in store for you. So that if right now you are not or have not been the parent that they look to, 20 years from now, when their grandchildren are sitting in church and a youth minister is reading 2 Timothy chapter 3 and talking about a mother and a grandmother, that they go, my grandparents. You know, my parents too. My grandparents started this faith journey for our family name. Wouldn't that be fantastic? I I want that. I I want to disciple my kids. I want my kids to know Jesus and see Jesus through me. And Paul tells Timothy, what I love about this is he says, hey, continue in what you're doing. And he says, knowing from whom you learned it. What he's saying to Timothy is this. Timothy, you've heard what the gospel does in in, in someone's life. You've heard how living in response to the character and nature of God is supposed to happen. But you not only have heard it, look at your mother and look at your grandmother who lived it out in front of you and you've seen over a long period of time and you've seen it actually from your childhood that it works. You've seen that obedience and being faithful to God has landed and and turned into blessing, not necessarily financial blessing, but spiritual blessing, that God has grown your mother and your grandmother and he's grown you. You don't just have to believe the word. Look to some people who have lived it out and you can see the truth in their life. They give you a model of, of where you're headed to. So when people are going, well, this and this and that, well, why, don't you, why don't you do a truth test? You know, why, why, don't you, why don't you look and see what the fruit of their life looks like? Because you've seen the fruit of your mother's life and your grandmother's life who have lived the gospel well. And that fruit doesn't hold up to the fruit of all of these other people. It's amazing. I, I, read, I like to read leadership stuff. I love it. I, I feel like that, that is something that God is trying to grow in me, this leadership gift and skill and, and trying to influence volunteers that serve in our ministry, trying to influence parents and, and, and church leaders and things like that. So I read a lot of leadership stuff. But it's interesting how many people, especially in the church world, write leadership books and they write like church growth books and they're not leading or growing churches. You know, you, you don't see that anywhere else. You don't see like, surgeon, a doctor is reading books about surgery from someone who's never done surgery. Well, this is how you would do it. You know, they'd go, no, I'm not reading that. But in the church world, we do that for some reason. We get these great ideas. And Paul says, you know what? You don't listen to the ideas. Look at the person from whom you learned it. See that the truth has influenced and changed their life. And there is your apologetic. There is your proof of why you need to continue on in this. And he closes this thought. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, Timothy, it's this track that you're on, this journey that I don't want you to drift from, that you can see the fruit in the lives of people around you that have lived it. 
It's, it's this journey that is preparing you for that day when you meet Jesus face to face. When you step over the line from earth into eternity, when you see God and you see Jesus face, this scripture, what you're learning, what you're watching, is preparing you for that journey to that moment. He says, don't stray from the journey. Don't get off track. Don't drift. Stay true to the journey that you're on. It's a good word for us. It's a good word for us who may have been in this journey for a longer time. Maybe for some of us in the room, we just need kind of that wake-up call to go, you know what? And I have drifted some. You know what I love about youth camp? Maybe what I love about youth ministry, one of the things, takes you back to those places so many times. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing fantastic about a bunk at a cabin at youth camp. Literally nothing. Not the showers that you share with a bunch of boys. Not the food that's at camp. Not the floor that when you walk out of the shower barefoot to your dorm, picks up, you know, a metric ton of dirt. You know, and there's nothing about it that makes you, makes you go, man, I'd like to do that. Except sometimes in those moments when you're sitting in that worship service surrounded by students and God takes you back to the simplicity of your call and your faith and go, I just want you to love God and love people because these kids do it so well. They're not distracted when they're at camp by all these, and that's where we need to be. Love that. Let me give you a couple of thoughts. Um, what we do, the first one is this. We need to turn spiritual disciplines into habits. We need, we need to make reading our Bible and praying those things that we know that we're to do at the very beginning of our faith journey, not the things that we do when we remember, but habits. That when the alarm goes off and we're sitting with that cup of coffee that wakes you up in the morning and we have our Bible open, reading. is a habit connected to the coffee. Then when I get in my car and I drive to work, that's going to be some time where I turn the radio off every morning, and pray, talk to God about my family, my career, what God's doing in my life, my church, my neighbors, my journey or my, my, my travel to work. I listen to music or NPR or whatever or podcasts on the way home. But on my way to work, I'm going to talk to God. I'm not saying you have to do it that way, but, but what are some cues, some things that, that turn these disciplines into habit that this is what I do to connect? read, read a, a book recently called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. Fantastic book. Um, highly recommend it, yeah, that, that you read it. In it, he talks about Tony Dungy. Uh, Tony Dungy is a, well, was an NFL coach. Now he's in the analyst world. When Tony Dungy was going from coaching position to coaching position, he had this idea about coaching that was really centered in habits. And what he wanted was not, he wasn't so concerned about schemes, and he wasn't so concerned about certain offices and certain defenses. He wanted football players to be able to respond instantaneously to the snap of the football. And he wanted it to be a habit. He wanted it to be something that they didn't even think about. And so what he began to, to train his team is when, when they would line up before the snap of the ball, they knew exactly what they were going to do by each position based on how, the, how the, the team across from them, if they were on defense, how the offense lined up, they would look at, at the way feet were placed. And they knew since he's standing that way at the snap of the ball, I do this. And when the ball snapped, they did it right or wrong. There wasn't 
thinking about it. There wasn't, oh, I think things have changed. What should I do in the situation? You just do what you're conditioned to do by what you see. See it, snap, do it. See it, snap, do it. See it, snap, do it. That, that was his philosophy, and people thought it was a little weird until he won a Super Bowl because he had these athletes where the margin of difference in their athletic ability from either team was so minuscule that they're, they're NFL athletes. I mean, there, there's a handful of guys that excel over a typical NFL. These are, these are the most athletic men on the planet. They're strong, they're fast, they're big. And what he thought is that that millisecond of time when we know just exactly what to do gives us the advantage. And so he built this habit. You see this and you do it. But what if you turn some of those disciplines? I see my cup of coffee and I open up the scripture. I sit down to drive to work and that's I turn the radio down. It's a conversation with God. I sit down for dinner with my kids and we have some spiritual conversations. I set my alarm for the next morning. If you're married, pray with your spouse. Some simple disciplines to go, this is just what we do. You can do that. Then like Timothy, like Paul says to Timothy, you can continue on along the journey. You stay focused. You don't start to drift. You have a greater, less greater likelihood of drifting. And here's the second thing. Develop some mentoring relationships. Paul tells Timothy, look, look, to, look at your mom, look at your grandmother. There's some people, there should be some people in your world. And if there's not, you need to change some of your world of, of who you see on a somewhat regular basis. There ought to be some people in your life that you look at and you go, you know what? I think he or I think she is doing this well. It may just be, it may just be, the spiritual walk, it just may be the disciple life. This person's walking with Jesus and I need to do that better. It may be a parent. And you go, man, I want to lead, I want to lead in parenting better. And so I see these people do it. Or maybe it's financial. You mean God's been laying on me that I need to get my financial house in order so it glorifies him first and my 401k second. And I struggle with that, but this person seems to do it well. And so, and so you have some mentoring relationships and some things that you need to grow where you can walk alongside some people and hear from them and see the fruit in their life to see how they're doing it and see how it works and to go, man, I, I want to learn from you. I want to have some people surrounding me that are kind of leveling the path for me. I mean, if you had a friend, an adult friend, that loved Jesus, and you knew, man, they loved Jesus. I mean, you, you saw Jesus all over them, and you look at and you go, man, if I could be like anybody else, I'd want to be like that guy. I want to be like her. And they came to you, they're a friend of you, and they came to you and they said, hey, you know what? I love your family. I love your family so much. I, would you, what would you think if like a couple of times a month I took your son and your daughter and we, ran and we went out to Sonic, got a drink, and we just talked about life and we talked about how to walk with Jesus? I mean, as a parent, very few of us would go, nah. We'd be like, seriously? How much does that cost me, right? How much do I need to pay you for that? And they go, oh, you don't have to pay me. I just, I just want to do it. No, you know, I mean, we, we, we would see great value in that. For some reason, we don't see great value in that for ourselves. To have somebody that we may have to approach, because they may not approach us to go, hey, I, I want to learn from you. I want you to speak into my life. What can, you, can you give me one, one day a month? You know, one hour a month? Can you give me two hours a month? Can, you give me, can, can, can I have one hour, a quarter? Whatever you can give me, I'll tell you, I just want to learn from you in this area. 
have some mentors, have some people in your life like Timothy had his grandmother and his mother so that we don't drift, so we stay true to the journey. I'm going to close with this and then give you some time to talk. I've said you know, a lot of times, I, I'm not a runner. Those people, you guys that run like for exercise, I, that's, that's probably who I need to adopt as a mentor. I need you to come up. If I didn't hate running so much, I probably would ask you, hey, but then you would say, well, let's go running, and then our friendship would be over at that point because I'm not ready for that. I'm on the treadmill. I'm walking. That's uh, baby steps. These people that do things like the Boston Marathon, I mean, those people are athletes, and they're committed to something. I mean, especially if you don't live in Boston. You know, if you, there, there's people who live in Texas that go, that's going to be one of my goals. I'm a runner, and I want to have done the Boston Marathon one day. And so they train, and they have an end goal in mind. They know the journey well for the Boston. They, they know the route, and they know what the journey looks like. I'm going to cross that finish line and win. I mean, may not win, I mean, not win first place, but winning is, is finishing. Do you know the Boston Marathon? At about mile 19, which makes my mind hurt to think about running, at mile 19, they have Heartbreak Hill. It's the steepest hill in the course. About the time that even for a marathon runner, the lactic acid is built up in the muscles. And the muscles are screaming for oxygen and your body's begging you to stop. It's at that moment that the steepest hill of the race is in front of you. And I'm sure there's some people along the way that just can't do it. They quit, they walk it. But most people that have made the effort to get to the Boston Marathon and do it, they're just gonna push on because they're gonna get to the goal. They're not gonna drift. They're not gonna take a shortcut. They're gonna power through even when it becomes difficult. And you know what happens when they cross the finish line? this great feeling that I accomplished the goal, that I finished strong, that I stayed true to the journey. For us, it's gonna look like Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. For us, it's gonna be laying in a hospital bed one day in our 90s with our family gathered around us and looking at our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and seeing three generations of people that love Jesus because we didn't stray from the course, because we stayed true to the journey. The good news is this. Your journey can begin this morning. It can begin this morning. You could be a 70-year-old, an 80-year-old, and go out the window on that, that end of my life is short but I'm going to finish strong. I see the goal. I'm going to stay true to the journey from today forward. And God will bless that. You can start today. That's the amazing thing about the grace of God. He's never going to count you out. Let's pray.